Hey, No Wrong Answers listeners, this is Kyle Palmer. Before this next episode begins, I did want to remind you about something No Wrong Answers has planned, and you'll want to hear this, especially if you live in the Kansas City metro area. No Wrong Answers, with the help of KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, and the Shawnee Mission School District is hosting a live event this Thursday, March 22nd, called Keeping Our Schools Safe. This is a community forum, free and open to the public, where we will talk about what schools can do to keep their students safe and make their students feel safe following the Florida school shooting. We want to hear from teachers, students, and parents, so come out and lend your voice to this community forum. Again, it's this Thursday, March 22nd at 6.30 p.m. at the Shawnee Mission Center for Academic Achievement on West 71st Street in Overland Park, Kansas. Check No Wrong Answers' Facebook page for more details. This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The National Student Walkout had us asking, is it really a protest if you have to get a permission slip to do it? Our teachers say more political activism is on the way from their students. Also, Betsy DeVos's much-watched 60 Minutes interview confirms all our teachers' worst fears. They say, what's she been doing this past year? Plus, the return of You Could Try This. And then, of course, Kids These Days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Paul Donovan, what do you teach? I am a high school math teacher. Thank you for being here. Elaine Jordan, what do you teach? Middle school math. And David Muhammad just got back from his spring break trip with his family, so he's at home. But joining us by phone, David Muhammad, what do you teach? I teach high school economics and international relations. So Paul, Elaine, David, all three are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. The big news story of this past week, both in education and in society more broadly, was the National School Walkout organized to coincide with one month since the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The day the National School Walkout was Marked frequently by that kind of celebratory, jubilant spirit from the West Coast to Washington, D.C., students stepped out of class, some for just 17 symbolic minutes in honor of the 17 Parkland victims, some for much longer as they chanted, marched, and agitated against gun violence and called for more gun control. By many accounts, it was an impressive display of national solidarity and activism by students, but it raised plenty of questions, too, and that's what we want to talk about today. For starters, was this really a protest if, say, students were organized under the watchful, sometimes winking eye of administrators and had to get permission slips saying they could step out of class? There was a story here in No Wrong Answers neck of the woods about a handful of girls at a Kansas City area high school who broke away from their school-sanctioned walkout and conducted their own longer, more politically pointed protest calling for gun control, and they received a five-day suspension. Was that fair in this context? Also, was the National Student walkout truly inclusive. A brother and sister told Philadelphia Magazine that they got verbally harassed and threatened by other students when they said they were not going to walk out because they didn't believe in the political aims of the exercise and thought it was all just 
a showy farce. And then there was this question posed by the New York Times. How young is too young to protest? The newspaper noted how elementary schools especially were grappling with how to both give their students voice but also draw clear parameters around participation, juggling the desire to teach civics in this unique real-world context with the responsibility to not put impressionable children into an activity they either did not fully understand or maybe didn't totally agree with. So there's a lot here. We want to have a, a lengthy discussion about it, but I'll go back to that first question I asked, hearkening to the experience of the girls who were suspended for breaking away from their school-approved walkout and conducting their own protest. Was this national student walkout truly student activism, or was it something more akin to, let's say, like a well-organized, supervised civics lesson? What do you think? I had several students, quite a few actually, who were angry about that. There were more people angry that they were not able to protest than there were that were angry at the idea and didn't go. They were expecting to do something political, and they were happy that the administration was going to support them. And then it got uh, it got co opted. You could say they they feel, and so they, it wasn't a protest. And so several of them now I hear I'm not part of this because I'm a grown-up, but I hear that they are working on their own walkout um, on April 20th, and they're not asking for the administration's permission to do it. Yeah. Uh, well, David Muhammad, yeah. to be fair, you have been on spring break, so your students actually did not participate in the national student walkout because they were on spring break. But I know before spring break, students in, in your district were uh, kind of uh, agitating for at least conversation and talking to administrators. So uh, what's your feelings about how the, the student walkout went? I think that they're policing these kids too much, and if they're not careful, they're going to have a, a more inflammatory effect on them because the kids have energy they want to get out. For instance, at the school that I teach at, there was an attempt to have like a town hall-type conversation during the seminar period, which is like a study hall, and one of the administrators really tried to come in and police it, and it just angered the kids even more. You know, you have to create parameters and guidelines for safety precautions, but... Other than that, you have to let, let, them, let them go, or yeah. else they'll find other means to do so, um, will be more harmful or much more explosive in nature, as opposed to have you just let them have their 17 minutes and construct it in their own way, or at least let them feel like they created what they wanted instead of you telling them this is how you're going to do it. These kids grew up, they've grown up in an era where they're very um, hip, to protest culture. They've mm -hmm. seen Black Lives Matter. They've seen the Women's March. Mm -hmm. So they know what it's supposed to look like, feel like. Mm -hmm. And so when you tell them what they can and cannot do, it's not like they're not, they're ignorant to what protesting is. Right. They're very trained with social media and such. They're very well versed in what it is they want to create. So I think that they know it better than us in some cases, and you should just let them have that day and now, like in some cases, like I think we're going to have some kids do something April 20th. I, I, I've heard talk of that. So you're going to create a bigger, bigger animal. I mean, it, it seems, uh, Paul, into your experience too, and Elaine, I'd like to hear your experience as well, being a middle school teacher, how, the, how it might be different. But it, it seems like, Paul, your students kind of saw through the, the veneer of, of engagement and activism and, and, and kind of what David is suggesting, bridled at it pretty, pretty hard. Yeah, there was a fairly sizable group of students who liked the way it came off because that's the way they wanted to focus on the positive, and, and so they were completely fine with it. Um, but there was another sizable group who, I mean, as they told me that they wanted to get sus uh, threatened with suspension because this was supposed to be something radical and not 
and not uh, yeah, let's just go over here and do this. And so yeah, they were um, they saw they saw right through. Well, I mean, the, the question I kept asking myself on, on Wednesday was, is it a protest if you have to get a permission slip to do it? <laughs> right. <laughs> we didn't have to get permission slips. Though we, there was a robocall, for, I think, from the superintendent, but uh, but it was all nice and orderly. Yeah. And uh, how are things different at middle school, Elaine? I'm glad you brought up social media, David, because I think that it is kind of helping kids feel solidarity with students in Parkland. Like the middle schoolers that I teach feel really involved with students from that school because they're following them on social media. And so they really felt like they wanted to do something to help their friends. What our district ended up doing at the middle school level was making it a lesson, kind of like with you guys. They were very clear on the first slide of the slide deck. It said this is not about gun control, which is what the whole thing was supposed to be about, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And more about, yes, like the building relationships feel good, which I also have a problem with because kids aren't responsible for the mental health of other kids, but that's a different conversation. Um, But so the kids just didn't really, they weren't excited about it. They weren't bought into it. I won't be surprised if we also see something happen in April. Uh, Does it serve school's interest on a a day like this, which is a, a unique day for sure, um, where there is this kind of national energy around walking out and and and, and protesting to to do things like give out detentions and suspensions. I mean, uh, what's the best way to handle this logistically from an educator's perspective? Obviously, you still have a job to get done. Um, there are still responsibilities that the school and the administration has. But um, you know, when you read about stories like in Allentown, Pennsylvania, some 200 kids got a detention. Or uh, I mentioned the story around here in Kansas City where a, a handful of girls at one high school got suspended for doing their own protest. I mean, does that does that serve the school's best interests? The school and the districts are making actually a bigger scene when they do that. And they're giving some of these kids exactly what they want. Like, if your concern is, let's not blow it out of proportion, but you give them suspensions, that makes me think of civil rights movement where, hey, let's get thrown in jail. Let's Mm -hmm. make the headline news, you know? And so you're better off just chalking it up as a loss. I mean, I understand Mm -hmm. that teachers want to, you know, like, oh, it's testing time, but come on, trust me. If if they're in the classroom on that day and you're policing them, their minds are not going to be engaged in education anyway. Let that be one day where you just allow them to be in the moment of, because they're going to remember this for the rest of their lives. These are pivotal moments. And we're supposed to be training, training them to be socially conscious human beings. And then when you police that, you miss out on these opportunities to be a part of the culture. Not, not only, I think, is it, I think I, I totally agree with David, but I think more than that, these students have a personal connection because many of them do feel it's a matter of their own life and death. Mm-hmm. And so saying stay in school and take the standardized test, they have, I mean, this is not just solidarity with a larger cause. I mean, it's about them and it's about their friends and that's not going to I know when you, when, you pu- when you put those two scenarios on the scales, right, like get prepared for this standardized test or, you know, be engaged in this issue of that, that is, you know, the premier issue of your generation, <laughs> right. like what's going to, what's going to win out. Um, uh, there was also the criticism lobbed in some quarters that this movement, this post-Parkland movement, led, we should say, most visibly but not exclusively by white students, is getting a lot more attention and even acclaim than similar student-led protest movements of recent years led by students of color. Think of Ferguson, think of Black Lives Matter. Is there that awareness in your schools that that this particular movement is getting more attention, maybe is getting more positive attention, more positivity than past protest movements led by students of color? I don't know if the kids are really aware of it, but as a teacher, I am. You know, you see universities that are saying 
if you receive disciplinary consequences for your participation in this march, we'll overlook that. But those weren't extended previously, to my knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I teach at a school that's predominantly white, and the kids are not really conscious of it. But I do, I do notice a shift in the energy when there was the Black Lives Matter movement and kids doing that. There was a lot of division, and I think part of it's just because some people, a lot of people, will say, "Well, this is something that affects everyone, and not particularly one race." I would turn on that and say that I think that anything that that affects one group affects everyone. But I think that this is just feeling more universal. I see two um, contributions here. One. Starting with Ferguson and all that, this was maybe the, when the, the students today first saw the protest culture get started for them. And so I have a feeling like a lot of the students at my school seem to be like excited that they figured out how to protest. And so mm-hmm. they were kind of watching before and learning. And um, this was their chance to finally put it into action. And there was also a call for a nationwide walkout on this. And I don't recall any nationwide walkouts for Ferguson or that anything anything organized on on this scope anyway. Yeah. So you're getting to I would, I would say I was going to say I would say though that it should be recognized that the efforts of many of the youth in the Black Lives Matter movements and others should be recognized for the doors that they've opened for this kind of attention. I think that I agree. again society is ready for this and hearing this because it's not the first time. Right. This is not the first time you've been banded together for a cause. Right. Um, so I think that that platform has been created because of Black Lives Matter and other groups. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. Without Black Lives Matter, this this protest wouldn't have happened. I guess wrapping up this conversation, I do want to get to that question the New York Times posed. Interesting because you all are secondary teachers, but what is too young to protest? Are we taking student voice seriously enough? Do we use age and immaturity as excuses to not truly engage with student complaints at times? I mean, you all teach students that are of an age where uh, maybe agency and, and personal opinion are a little bit more important in their daily lives as opposed to elementary school where maybe they're not voicing opinions as much. But um, what is too young to protest? I think as soon as a kid has access to social media, they can understand protesting. I mean, it's just the formula in which you, the format in which you do it but um, if they can voice their opinion of, like, how many views they want to get or their opinion on who should have won Oscars, then I think they can protest. <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, like, that's, no, all, that's, that's all in the same realm. Yeah, and I guess with that said, what uh, what all have I mean, you as individual educators, but also maybe your schools as well, learned uh, based on your experiences in the National School Walkout and the days leading up to it? Because, of course, I'll, I'll again say, David, you were on spring break. But, I mean, what have you learned? And, and going forward, it sounds like this isn't over, right? So how are you adapting to how you want to engage students on this issue going forward, both as a teacher and maybe within your school context? I think the big thing I've seen or just I keep realizing is that middle schoolers aren't Um, apathetic or not engaged, which I think sometimes is a criticism of like young adolescents is that they're super self-absorbed, but they want to get involved and they want to help. They're just not always sure how. And so I think a challenge for us as teachers is to figure out a way that they can get involved and truly have a voice as opposed to just kind of participating in another lesson. Yeah. And it sounds like this is a real, this issue is a real unique opportunity to mm-hmm. do that. It sounds like based on what your students are saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, David, what do you think? What, what, what lessons have you learned so far going forward on this issue with your students? For me, the, the students today are way more savvy and canny about the culture than, than I was when I was in high school. 
This is a completely different. It's a social media thing, um, and and they saw they saw through the uh, the walkout quicker than I did um, on this, and uh, I eventually I caught on to it because when, when people were talking about walk up, not walk out, and I thought that was an interesting thing, and then I found out that was a thing all over the country that administrators were doing. The kids had seen through that already, and they and, didn't like it. No, they didn't like it at all. <laughs> I mean, they're like, we, yeah, we can walk up to people. We can do that in school. We don't need to protest to, mm-hmm. to do that, to be nice to people. Yeah. David, last word? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that what I've learned is that it's best to just listen to the kids and let them lead the way and then, you know, help them in whatever it is that they're trying to do. I mean, our job is to assist them, not to control them. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not going away. You all said that there's probably going to be more, that April 20th might be a day where there's more actions and more uh, truly student-led protests. So we'll have to wait and see, and we'll probably talk about it in the future. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, we've got to do it this episode. It's the latest edition of the Betsy Breakdown, and we main break down this time. So we have to talk about Betsy DeVos on 60 Minutes. The Secretary of Education was the focus of a story recently on that CBS News Magazine show. And some things she said and how she came across generally created a stir, especially in education circles. In one much-watched exchange with 60 Minutes reporter Leslie Stahl, DeVos struggled to answer even basic questions about the performance of schools in her home state of Michigan, where she has devoted much time and her own personal wealth to promoting school choice policies. We're going to air a lengthy clip here, which is about two minutes long. It begins with Stahl's questions about the effects of funding on traditional public schools when students leave for schools of choice, and uh, you'll see it goes on from there. Why take money away from that school that's not working to bring them up to a level where they are, that school is working? Well, we should be funding and investing in students, not in school, school buildings, not in institutions, not in systems. And okay, but it, what so about it should the kids be, who are back at the school that's not working? What about if, those kids? Well, in places where there have been, where there is a lot of choice that's been introduced, um, Florida, for example, the studies show that when there's a large number of students that opt to go to a different school or different schools, the traditional public schools actually, the results get better as well. Now, has that happened in Michigan? We're in Michigan. This is your home state. Michigan, yes. Well, there's lots of great options and choices for students Have here. Have the public here. schools in Michigan gotten better? Uh, I don't know. Overall, I I can't say overall that they have all gotten better. The whole state is not doing well. Well, there are certainly lots of pockets where the the, the students are doing well. But your argument that if you take funds away, uh, that the schools will get better is not working in Michigan, where you had a huge impact and influence over the direction of the school system here. I hesitate to talk about all schools in general because 
schools are made up of individual students attending them. The public schools here the, the, are the, doing worse than they did. Michigan schools need to do better. There is no doubt about it. Have you seen the really bad schools? Maybe try to figure out what what they're doing? I have not I have not I have not intentionally visited schools that are underperforming. Maybe you should. Uh, maybe I should. Yes. Well, our teachers roundly criticized DeVos when she went through her confirmation hearing uh, last year, which was widely seen then as a disaster. Uh, still, she was confirmed, so she's been on the job a year. So I turn to my teachers now. Does this 60 Minutes segment, and especially this exchange over Michigan schools, I guess what does this tell you about how she's approached her job this past year? It doesn't seem to me like she's tried to learn anything new. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think there was uh, that same criticism in The Atlantic, just like, what has she done for the past year? I understand showing up and maybe not understanding the full scope of the job, because how could you if you've never done it before? But it's been a year. As teachers, we live and die by data all year long. And you would expect that the Secretary of Education would at least know basic facts at this point. Joshua Starr, who's the CEO of a Uh, professional educators association called PDK International. He was quoted in The Atlantic saying um, the interview shows it's either a matter of, in his words, total incompetence or willful ignorance. Her answers are either a stunning lack of knowledge or an outright lie. Uh, What do you think it is? Do you think she's just incompetent? She hasn't looked or there's something maybe possibly more sinister or nefarious there? I really don't know, but it just makes me think about when we're talking about kids' behaviors, we talk about is it a can't-do or a won't-do, and I feel like we're having the same conversation about the Secretary of Education. Is it a can't-do or a won't-do? And I have to believe, I guess I can decide, it is. it must be a won't-do. How could it be a can't-do at this point? If if she does, yeah, I came to the conclusion she was lying, especially about her own home state. If she doesn't know the results of her own home state, then she has, she is completely incompetent. So I'm guessing that through her Stepford wife uh, interview um, that she was just lying through her teeth. On a more personal level, do you um, hope to see more competence and evidence of real engagement with policy issues? Or do you actually have you just kind of either given up on her or do you actually relish seeing her fumble through <laughs> moments like this? <laughs> I, I mean, I have to say initially, like, it's kind of fun to watch her be incompetent but then it gets a little scary because it's like well is there a like a purposeful effort to kill public school you know like i used to think that like kind of in a radical way but like since betsy DeVos got in i've become more under the assumption like there must be some movement to really kill off the public school industry if it is yeah i mean uh paul elaine that kind of conspiracy theory is out there that you know her her kind of general demeanor and, and seeming lack of knowledge is actually more calculated and um, that there is, you know, a real effort by the Trump administration to really kind of delegitimize the public school system. On a functional level, it doesn't matter so much because it's not working for her. Um, like we were just talking about, she hasn't done anything for a year. And while that's that's embarrassing and awkward for her, that's, she hasn't done anything. So she really, I don't think she's really hurt the public school cause Um despite what her bias obviously is. And so I feel awkward that she's sort of uh, the person talking for us. But most of the teachers I know just ignore her now, and then we just do our thing. Uh, Another portion of this 60 Minutes segment that 
drew a lot of criticism. DeVos's response to Leslie Stahl's question about the Trump administration potentially rescinding an Obama-era guideline that aims to protect students of color from harsher punishment than their white classmates. I'm going to play another clip here, not as long as the first one, but here's what DeVos said to that question. Arguably, all of these issues or all of this issue comes down to individual kids. And um, well, no, it, that, it's it not. does come down to individual kids. And well, it that, no, no. often comes down to, um, <laughs> I, I am committed to making sure that students have the opportunity to learn in an environment that is conducive to their learning. Do you see this disproportion in discipline for the same infraction as institutional racism? We're studying it carefully and um, are committed to making sure students have opportunity to learn in safe and nurturing environments. So what does this tell you? What should we think about um, Betsy DeVos's stance on especially, uh, you know, race-based discrimination policies or, or the effects of, of, of discipline on different racial groups? It seems to me like she wants to uphold those disparities and she doesn't see a problem with them. Yeah, when she said we're studying this carefully, what does that mean? She didn't go into any, is she looking at data? Is she talking to students? Is she, uh, I mean, that was just such an empty answer. And that was, that was probably my favorite part of the interview because Leslie Stahl just got so confused and dumbfounded by by Betsy's just kind of refusal to even accept the question that Leslie answered. I mean, that spoke volumes. All right, well, one last uh, segment of this uh, 60 Minutes uh, piece that I wanted to play is a little bit newsier. It was the announcement that DeVos will be heading up a task force to study school safety in the wake of the Parkland school shooting. Uh, she had this to say about possibly arming teachers, which the Trump administration has been pushing of late. That should be an option for states and communities to consider. And um, I, I hesitate to think of, like, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Zorhoff. I couldn't ever imagine her right. um, having a gun and uh, being trained in that way. But for those who are, who are capable, this is one solution that can and should be considered. Oh, poor Mrs. Zorhoff, thrown under the bus there. Uh, <laughs> uh, reactions to that, because I know uh, I've talked to the teachers in the, in the past few weeks, uh, really just universally against arming teachers, um, reactions to Betsy DeVos now heading up a group that will study school safety. Hopefully that means nothing will change. Right. <laughs> That's the way I'm looking right. at it. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm, I'm catching on to her codes when she says we are studying this carefully. That means we're not doing anything. You guys look like you're tired of talking about Betsy DeVos. <laughs> it's just so sad. Yeah. It's just like I feel bad for all of us. I feel kind of bad for her, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, say more. Why? Well, like, did you see her face when she was asked if people making fun of her hurts? I just saw in her face, like, she just looked like a sad little kid when she was like, yeah, it does hurt sometimes. Now, on the flip side of that coin, I'm like, well, then there's your mandate to go out and educate yourself and do better. But, I mean, I did really feel bad for her in that moment. But then she said, I'm, I'm being misunderstood. So, Well, that's true. Yeah. It was fleeting. Bad for her at all. She shouldn't have signed up for the job. Yeah. And, and, we, and we should that's say true. since that 60 Minutes piece aired, she has come out pretty forcefully and said that 60 Minutes selectively edited her responses and that it misportrayed things that she was trying to say. Um, so there is that. There is that response. But All right. Well, before Kids These Days, it's our segment. You could try this. In this segment, we pose dilemmas, quandaries, questions, or problems that teachers may have and are 
Teachers give our listeners specific actionable pieces of advice by saying you could try this. This week's question is inspired by something the CEO of toy company Lego recently told the World Economic Forum. He said helping kids play more will equip them to, in his terms, become relevant to the workplace and to society when they are adults. And research does back this up. Everything from pretending you're Batman to building houses out of wooden blocks have been shown to increase kids' empathy and interpersonal awareness and improve cognitive and social skills. Now, we happen to have three secondary teachers on the panel this week, two high school teachers and a middle school teacher. So play, you may suspect, is a domain most frequently discussed and thought about among primary grade teachers. Still, we wanted to ask on this edition of You Could Try This, how could I introduce elements of play into my classroom, even if I'm a secondary teacher? So how can I introduce elements of play? The first thing that I jumped into my mind is that I'm assuming the benefits of play are because of those interpersonal connections, or at least that's one aspect of it. And I think that in secondary settings, it's really easy to lose that as we move more towards Google Classroom and digital individualized learning. And so by providing opportunities for students to interact as people, I think we're kind of meeting that play objective even though it's not like dress up and playing house and that kind of thing. Though you could always do that in middle school. I mean, absolutely. It's a life skill, believe me. <laughs> uh, Paul, what are you thinking? Uh, there's a website, Kahoot, mm-hmm. that um, several several teachers swear by and, and students really like that because it kind of treats it as a game show. Um, Can you explain what Kahoot is or what it, what it does? I haven't really used it. But Elaine, you've used it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, people on my team love it. And um, basically, you use multiple choice questions. And so students select their answer on their individual device. And then they earn points based on those answers. And that shows the leaderboard, that kind of thing. Uh, David, play in high school, international relations. Yeah, I use it a lot more in economics uh, with like... um, reality-based situations, so with supply and demand, I do a game called Pearl Exchange activity where we create a market and they have to sell the product and try to um, base it upon, like, different changes. Like, if I create a shortage or a surplus, how will that affect prices and things like that? Um, They mentioned review games. Uh, I've used Jenga before where, like, each Jenga block has different numbers, and so whichever one gets pulled, I have to answer that question and course they knock it over there's penalties so i think that we play in high school we just do it on a more sophisticated level and uh, back to the supply and demand game so what is that like cognitively what is that doing for students well i think it's making it seem a lot less textbook and lecture based you know i think that when teaching sometimes it can become a lot about like the me in front of the classroom as the instructor and you receiving this knowledge and that's where it stops as opposed to being applicable um and 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 i think that kind of stuff sticks a lot longer of course than just notes tests um you know worksheet problems things of that nature if you have a problem or classroom question need advice you can email us no wrong answers pod at gmail.com you could post a question on our facebook page or tweet us as well just search no wrong answers Well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. 
You can find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Paul, what are your high school kids into? Um, My high school kids have caught the Star Wars bug, and they debate... Um, these last two Star Wars movies just as much as previous generations did. Now, like the original trilogy, they see it as useful more for historical record than for any particular. I mean, they're not particularly wedded to any of those. But these new ones, there's they're, they're always content, their theories about Luke and and uh, Snoke and and I mean, so this generation has caught the bug. And there's new there's a new uh, there's a new Star Wars movie coming out right, right? There's the, the, Han Solo, the Han Solo movie right, right? so is that yeah. has that piqued their interest a little bit but most of them they've only seen Han Solo die in the, right, in the other, right. so yeah. I mean so it's just sort of like well, okay <laughs> yeah, that, that's more for a Star Wars fan of a different generation right, right? Uh, okay Elaine what are your kids into they are into making their own Google Classroom which they used to share memes all day. What? Yes. So it looks like, you know, they think they're being really sneaky because it looks like it's an assignment, but really they just update the stream with memes literally all day. So how did that start? How did, couldn't they just do that in a, in a different, like more efficient way than having to start a, a Google Classroom or? Yeah, but they thought it would be, I was watching kids in homeroom do it, which is how I figured it out. Um, but they're like, well, yeah, teachers don't notice. You know, they think you're in their Google Classroom, but we're in our memeology Google Classroom <laughs> oh. and they don't even notice it. So like if you were to walk by their yeah. screen, it, it appears like they are in Google Classroom, mm-hmm. but they're not in your Google right, Classroom. Okay. Right, right. They're in theirs. <laughs> uh, kids, man. <laughs> Uh, all right, David, you've been on spring break. You're just getting back. Uh, but what were the kids into before you went on spring break? Uh, a lot of energy over Black Panther. I mean, I was yeah. really impressed with how many kids were into it, especially where I teach, but it just showed how big it was. And I think it helped that I was ecstatic about it. So, yeah, Black Panther all the uh, way. We'll talk forever. Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Paul Donovan, Elaine Jordan, David Muhammad for calling in. He just got back from spring break. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Again, a reminder, if you live in the Kansas City metro, please come out this Thursday, March 22nd, to our community forum, Keeping Our Schools Safe. Check our Facebook page for more details. Our own David Muhammad will actually be on the panel for that night. So, again, go to our Facebook page for more details. And for this week, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Just wanted to let you know, No Wrong Answers listeners, that we are taking a two-week break from producing new episodes. This coincides with many of our teachers' spring breaks and also the Easter holiday. We'll be back with a new episode the second week of April. April.